our Bibles now. We're turning to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. Joshua, chapter 5. They finally made it into the promised land. They have crossed the Jordan. And uh, crossing the Jordan, many of our songs make it sound like you're going to heaven. But actually in the Bible, it's a typology of actually crossing into salvation and into the victorious life. It's the preparation for battle. It's the preparation for conquering the enemy and possessing the territory, possessing the, the inheritance that God has promised us as we would follow him. And so as we look at this passage, we see there's a lot of some strange things that happen in the next couple of chapters. We see, first of all, uh, we see that they have, they have not kept the, they have not been circumcised for a whole generation for, for, and they have to redo that. We see that uh, they have not taken of the Passover since the first Passover outside of Egypt. They took one, the first one was in Egypt, then the first one was in Sinai, and they haven't had another one since. And we don't understand why, and there's all kinds of conjectures, and the Lord didn't seem like he uh, scolded Moses for not keeping it or whatever. Uh, but then again, we see that he'll talk a little bit about this, but there's conjecture about why they didn't. Now, I'm sure there were many uh, people within the nation of Israel that uh, the families that knew God, as we saw like Simeon this morning, or they would have, they probably would have, but as a nation, it wasn't required. But, and uh, then there's uh, things such as when they got into the land, uh, then the, I mean, it was after they crossed over into the territory that they, that they had, uh, that they were circumcised. And that, I mean, that would have put them extremely vulnerable. Why didn't God do that ahead of time? And all these different things. Uh, then we see them marching around the city of uh, Jericho. And uh, the priests were never to be leading the battle. And yet in that, and we'll have to look at that uh, later on, but uh, we'll see that uh, the priests were at the, t- at the front of that march around Jericho. And then, of course, on the, the Sabbath day, you're supposed to rest. But they, that was the time they marched around the city seven times. So there's all kinds of convoluted things here that we look at. And we say that, why did God do this? Or uh, what, what happened here? And... Uh, of course, the one thing that we want to notice uh, in the, is God's ways don't always make the most sense, but they're always the right way. And that's the one thing we want to look at is when God t- tells us to do something, even if it's different from the norm, then, uh, it, but it's always the right way. And so as we begin reading in chapter 5, we see that uh, this is really a follow-up from chapter 2, where the spies had said that uh, the people were discouraged, and let's go take the land. But he says, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, they'd crossed over, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. So that was uh, the Canaanites and the Philistines were close relatives. And uh, they would be the people that later on were like the Phoenicians who founded Carthage. And so these were seafaring people uh, along up and down the coast. And of course, with their, um, with their intermarriage and so forth, they, they, uh, they had a lot in common. And so the Canaanites, the Amorites, of course, were, uh, were on the 
eastern side of the west side of the Jordan. But uh, these were the very, and all of them, were very filthy, um, horrible, immoral people. And again, uh, Rob, I, I think he sent it to you. Did you, did you see that uh, uh, video that Rob sent? To, I mean, just uh, the archaeology that they've uncovered about how, how gross the Amorites were. And you even shaking your head. So, yeah, it's one of those I'm not sure I even want to show here in the auditorium. But it's just one of those things that just every imagination of immoral, immorality that you could think of was practiced by the Amorites. No wonder the Lord said, wipe them out. And that's what I'm afraid of. We're getting to that point today in America. Aren't we? We're getting to the point where just about everything you could think of is being promoted. And uh, I hope we're not like the Amorites. But he said, uh, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the children of Israel until um, we had crossed over. So obviously this man is the writer and we don't know who the writer of Joshua uh, the book of Joshua was. Many people believe it's Joshua, but this is first person that we have crossed over, that their hearts melted and there were no more spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So this was, a, this was not just uh, some private little miracle. This was something that the whole world saw. And as we saw that, that uh, the Lord said that, um, you know, he's a, that uh, the Lord of heaven and earth, we saw that those terms introduced twice in the former chapters. And here these people were realizing that this was a God that was bigger than anything they'd ever seen. Uh, this was the Lord God of Israel was the real thing. And so they were quite afraid. The one question I always have about this, and the same way with Satan if I'd seen all these victories, if I knew about, and more my dad told me about uh, the Red Sea crossing and how that, uh, the, uh, how that the Egyptian army was totally obliterated while the children of Israel, two million of them, walked across the, uh, on dry land. And then it happened again, except it was a river this time. And, uh, and here they are crossed over, now they're in our land. Why, does, why don't people just go ahead and say, Lord, I understand. If I can't beat you, I'm going to join you, you know, or whatever. Why is it that Satan, after he's been whipped over and over and over and over again, and like I said, uh, I think it was in Sunday school this morning, if, the, if Satan had known that the Lord Jesus had risen, was going to rise from the dead, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it, of course, the Bible says... Uh, that his head was bruised. In other words, God knocked him in the head with the resurrection. Why would, if I was an intelligent, uh, articulate, uh, gifted person like Satan, he who is Lucifer, the son of morning, uh, why wouldn't I just go ahead and say, Lord, forgive me? Why does, and we see that the blindness that God allows people to the point where they can't, uh, they can't repent. In fact, later on, as you see in the book of James, the, and of, then back as he talks about, uh, they, they weep and mourn, but perchance that God would give them deliverance or God would give them repentance. And so even by the fact that God would want you or that you have a desire to repent, who gave you that, that desire? 
the Lord Jesus. And so the one thing I see in Scripture is that when God gives up, remember uh, three times, God gave them over, gave, God gave them up, gave them over to, uh, to do the, what they would want to do in Romans chapter 1. That, we call that a reprobate mind. That's the point where God says, okay, you're going to go that route. I'm not even going to give you the chance to repent anymore because I'm the one who even gives you that mercy in the first place. Why did you come to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Was it because you did anything or because he convicted you? It was because he came first, right? We love him, why? Because he first loved us. And so we see that uh, these Amorites were, God, they were past feeling. They were past God dealing anything with them. And there, as he had said, said even 400 years to Abraham, that uh, their iniquity was not yet full. Well, now it's full. And yeah, there, were, there are going to be people, even Amorites, individuals that are going to be saved. But as a group of people, we see that uh, they're going to be judged by God. And all that we see that, um, that's what I pray, like I said, uh, even in our prayer, a revival comes when there's something to revive. You know, but an awakening is whenever there's nothing there. And uh, I'm praying that God would... I'm kind of wondering about my generation. We've been been knowing so much about the Bible and been giving so many ex- uh, uh, opportunities. Why is it that uh, my generation, the Pepsi generation, the uh, Bomer generation, whatever you call it, we've had we were we were probably the most prosperous generation in all the history of the world. We had the cars, we had the education, we had uh, all the the greatest things. But, and it all made us happy, right? We're the most miserable generation that have come along. And, uh, and uh, we're not happy. And now people are getting older and so forth, and, uh, and they're still not happy. And now we've got a generation before that that think we, got, we have everything, and, uh, and yet we don't feel like we have anything. It's kind of interesting how that goes. But here we're talking about these generational things. And the next thing we see here is that the generation that left Egypt had some real problems. And so at that time, notice in verse 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again a second time. Now, of course, they were done. This was done uh, in Egypt. But now the, the whole generation has gone by and they have been neglected by the people that have seen the greatest miracle up until that time in all the history of the world. They had seen the Red Sea crossing. They had seen the plagues of Egypt. They had seen firsthand what a powerful God can do. And yet they neglected. They neglected what God told them. Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that you shall teach your sons sons. And here we see that a whole generation now has come and uh, this, of course, um, this, was a, a, this was an outward symbol of an inward belief. Remember what we saw in the book of, uh, of Colossians this morning. When we are saved, it is circumcision not made with hands. In other words, God circumcises our heart. And back in Deuteronomy, the Lord said, circumcise your heart to the Lord. In other words, separate yourself. Make, make your life distinguished from the world. And so we see that he said that the second time Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel on the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Okay, what is the reason? 
All the people came out of Egypt who were males. All the men of war died, who had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who had come out had been circumcised, but all uh, the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And there's a big question, the big three-letter question. Why? Why had they neglected this? Um, and there's all kinds of conjectures you can read. You know, and that's the one thing about commentators is they're not very common. I mean, they, they, uh, they have all kinds of opinions. And um, some good, but you know, there again is uh, there, there are those who are conservative in their thoughts and then there's others always looking for something to pick apart. But here we see that he says, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were men of war who had come out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom he swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give, that he would give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Joshua circumcised the sons who since he, God, had raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So first of all, before you can partake of the Passover, you had to be, of course, they were to be, uh, no uncircumcised Jew was to partake of the, of the Passover. And yet, so that means there are two, two institutions that God had set up that would distinguish Israel from anybody else. And of course, the Passover would be a call to anyone who wanted to know God, they could, that Israel would be their oracle. Israel would tell them how to come to know the Lord Jesus, how to come to the Lord Jehovah, who of course is Jesus. And so uh, Israel was the oracle, and we see throughout their history, they failed miserably, and this generation was no different. And so it was that when they had finished circumcising the people, now think about this. It was two boys, uh, two men, Simeon and Levi, that wiped out a whole town, uh, Shechem, because, of course, if you remember the story, how they tricked the men into being uh, circumcised. Well, here they are in a position, and all the men of war, where they couldn't fight for two or three days. And this would have been a great time if God had not protected them. But notice God put the fear of himself and to the hearts of those around. Many times we don't realize just how God protects us by the way that he puts fear in our enemies or that he changes things in our country. I think of all the things we're seeing that we never even thought about um, in our history. Uh, back in, uh, right after the uh, War of 1812, um, we, had, um, we had six ships. We had the Constitution, the Constellation, a couple of other, six ships in our Navy. And there were, our president named Monroe said that, you know, I think we're tired of all these European wars. And so no other European country is going to be able to, uh, to colonize North or South America. And, you know, here you've got France and England, England with a huge navy, France with a, a navy four times, ten times bigger than ours or even more. You had Germany, you had all those, all those countries, Spain, all those places who could have whipped, I mean, they outnumbered us a thousand to one as far as if they combined. 
And who were we to tell them that they could not come to either continent, the Western Hemisphere, and start another to, to colonize anymore? And that's one reason we haven't seen a lot of the battles. You know, the World War I didn't affect us over here because of, uh, you know, uh, we, they, there were no colonies over here that Germany had or all the rest. They had them in Africa, but not here. There was all kinds of things where we have been totally protected from all the European wars up until now. And now we're seeing we're being invaded by uh, or that uh, many of the countries, uh, Chile as well, uh, um, uh, not Ecuador, but... Um, Venezuela, I'm sorry. Venezuela now is being, you know, is opening up Chinese ports. Chi uh, we see that uh, Russia is making, and China is making great inroads into Cuba and other countries up and down, and, and they are entertaining uh, the, uh, the foreign powers. It was interesting back uh, when the, the Lord protected us from all that, uh, it was interesting how that we didn't have the power to enforce the very thing that we call the Monroe Doctrine. But England came along and said, you know, we're tired of fighting. We're in so much debt that we can't afford another war. And so if we can't afford another war and we can't afford another war with the United States, then we're not going to let anybody else have, have or do that either. And so their Navy joined our Navy in saying no more. And so it was interesting how that God protected us, even though we had a president that had no idea. I mean, he, did, he was very, very brash in just saying that nobody else could do it. But yet God protected and God used that to protect us for, what, 200 years. But now we see that uh, we're being encroached upon. And just all the little things that God does in putting fear into our enemies. How, why is it that your house is not invaded right now? Is it because God is protecting it? Why is it that that person that just hates your guts doesn't kill you? Is it because God puts a fear into them? Uh, and so we see that, uh, that God has ways of protecting us. How did he change his hearts? We see how that God changed the heart of Pharaoh toward Joseph or, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar toward Daniel. We see how that, how that God changes people's minds. How that he could change the course of a trial and the thoughts of a judge or a jury and protect us in ways that we never even thought. And here we see this wasn't, uh, and what the Lord was doing here was saying, you be obedient to me. And in spite of the fact that they were put in a place of incapacity, God says, I'm your, didn't he tell them before, I'm going before you? So if I'm going before you, then I'll protect you. And so we see that this is exactly what is happening, that as he is saying, now, before you really start the battle, now you've crossed over into the promised land, but before you start the battle, you're going to get your, some spiritual things straightened out. And so it was, in verse 8, that when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places, they had to, in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day... I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal, which is removing um, to this day. We've looked a lot. Uh, the writer of, uh, of, first, of uh, excuse me, Psalms 119 is uh, very concerned 
about the reproach of people. And we've, we'll see that over and over again in Psalm 119. But reproach is the idea of disdain, of uh, looking down the nose at someone. So the reproach of Egypt, what was it? There's two things that we can think of. First of all, as they would look back on their lives, they would think about just the bondage that they'd come out of. And they were still a people that had wandered around. They didn't have anything to offer. And this is one thing that, uh, that we see one nation against another. I was reading the other day about one reason that uh, Russia wants to take over Europe is because they feel so put down by the Europeans. And they could really uh, ignite their people to hate the Germans and the French and everything. Because even back in World War II, uh, when the German army invaded Germany, they didn't know what a bathtub was. And they were using it for latrines and all kinds. They didn't, and, they, and, and the average Russian peasant, even until today, still feels inferior to, there's a reproach there. They, they, and of course, the blue bloods of uh, some of those countries really look down. And then, of course, you think of racism and all those different things. That's a reproach. Whenever you look down your nose or you think you're better than other people. Well, the Egyptians, of course, had seen these children of Israel. Yes, they had been defeated. But what were they doing out there wandering around for, for 40 years in the wilderness? A bunch of dumb people just wandering around doing nothing. And so, of course, I mean, the Egyptians, still, they were still a very civilized country. They were still uh, uh, well regarded, even though they had, had some tremendous setbacks. And yet they were stable. You know, they had a king. They had, a, they, they had all their riches. They were still building those big, beautiful temples. And the, some of the things that, uh, that they still marvel at, just how much they built and what they, what they did during that time. And so they, look, they were looking down. And of course, the people, you can imagine, the Canaanites, and they were thinking, what in the world's going on with these people wandering around out there like a bunch of nomads? What are they doing? But then, of course, you think about, personally, these people had a reproach. Every time they thought about their past, then they felt embarrassed. But notice he says, this day, the people of Egypt and all the other nations there's no more reproach anymore. They, they're looking and say, oh my. Uh, not only did uh, they escape us, but look what had happened. There was another miracle. And now they've crossed over into the promised land. Or they wouldn't say the promised land, but now something else has happened with their God. But all of a sudden, uh, they gained a lot of respect from those around them, as well as their self-respect. And so we see now that uh, that reproach and now the people are re-identified as children of God. They have an identity. And now we see the second thing and uh, as we look at this passage is, uh, so first of all, we see the, uh, we see the, the um, reviving or the, um, excuse me, the, recommitting themselves to the Lord. But then we see the remembering. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and they kept the Passover on the 14th day, exactly 40 years later from the first Passover, on the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho, right outside of Jericho. Now they they are participating in the Passover and they ate 
of the produce of the land on the day. So we see remembering. They remembered. And of course, what was the Passover all about? The Passover, even till today, is they look back on what the Lord did for them in Egypt and the leavened bread. And of course, we've had uh, uh, Jewish uh, missionaries come through and even go through the Passover cedar with us and show us just how closely uh, connected it is to the Lord's table and the bitter herbs and all that, that all representing the bitterness that they were in Egypt and uh, all the, the things that, uh, that come from that. And so now a whole new generation, you can imagine now, they had for 40 years not partaken, a whole new generation had to be taught what it was all about. How sad to see this. And so we see that, uh, that God had to deal with this whole new generation of people coming out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so we see, uh, actually we see the renewing and the first uh, with, the, uh, with the circumcision, we see the remembering. And of course this was for remembrance. And until this day, they go back and look at what God did in making them a nation and bringing them out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so the Passover was all about that. And of course we know when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So it was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ delivering us from sin. And so we see they remembered. Now you can imagine the next thing we see them receiving because it says right after that, it says in verse 11, and that they, they ate of the produce of the land after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain the same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. Now, we have a young lady here that I just realized that next month she will no longer be a teenager. Uh, she's going to be the ripe old age of 20 years old. I mean, boy, she is really getting up there. But, uh, you know, if, if we were of that, of that generation that roamed around, she would have never known what it was like, not like, to go out and gather, or for her father or someone in the family to go out and gather manna. She would have never known any other way. She would have never seen her mother cook eggs for breakfast. They would have had manna. They would have baked it, boiled it, they would have done anything with it. But you know, they might have had some from their, from, uh, from their flocks or whatever, but uh, they were in barren land out in the desert. And she would have never known anything other than it was always there until it was gone. And so here a whole new generation had to learn the provision of God. But isn't it interesting God knew exactly what he was doing? He did this at the time of harvest, or excuse me, at the time of, of, uh, of well, harvest, the first fruits. As we know later on uh, the, in Jericho, uh, they have discovered big vats of grain that uh, had been gathered uh, during this time of the year. And so the children of Israel, they had to fight and capture those cities because that's where the grain was. But they did it. They started out exactly at the right time of the year. And so it's always in God's timing. It's always in God's will that he provides protection. He provides provision and uh, power to do what he tells us to do. 
And so we see now that he says it ceased on that day. And from then on, a 20-year-old person would say, what do we do now? And they would have to live off the land. They, didn't, they still weren't in a position to farm. And so it was either fight or starve. And so God now put them in a position that either they go forward or they're going to die. And folks, uh, in our Christian life, there's, you know, even though he leads us to the valley of the shadow of death, we keep on going or we're going to die spiritually. If we give up, if we don't keep fighting, if we don't keep looking for the provision of God, I'm not saying that we conquer cities, but thank you. But spiritually, we've got to conquer the land. We've got to conquer our hearts. We gotta, we gotta, God gives a will, but that will is not that we just live on flowery beds of ease. But he's got a challenge for us. He's got a mission for us. He's got things for us to do. But when we're in the center of his will, then I like what uh, Hudson Taylor says. He says, God's work doing, done God's way will never lack God's provision. And so we see that that's what uh, we see here, that God provided protection, God had provide, now provided provision. And there was not going to be angel's food, as Psalm 78 calls it, anymore. And so now the children of Israel, this whole new generation of people who had never seen, what, never known what it, was, what it was not like to have manna, is now going to have to learn a whole new way of living. And so we see they were receiving. But also we know that the, the day after Passover was the, the Feast of first fruits. And so I wonder what they did here. I wonder if, if Joshua taught them and if they went back and looked at Leviticus and they offered the first fruits of the provision of the land to the Lord uh, during that uh, festival week. And so we see that and they, had eaten, they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna but they ate the food of the land of, the Can- of Canaan that year. So God provided, and he, it was in his timing. They came across exactly at the right time of the year. They were in exactly the right place, and God had done exactly what he needed to do with his, their enemies before they fought one battle, and because they were in the will of God. And so we see uh, not only was there renewing and there was remembering, there was receiving, but also notice there's recognition. Now Joshua had already sent spies into the land. He had already done all these different things to get ready. Remember, Joshua was a, was a captain. Uh, Joshua was a general. And he had already, he had several battles under his belt. And he had won some, he was undefeated. He was doing the will of God. Uh, his strategies, of course, directed by God, were, were infallible. I mean, he just, he, he whipped everybody he came across. And sometimes they were out, he was outnumbered. And so here he's thinking, oh my, this is a bigger city, but I'm going to, uh, uh, we're making preparations. But then something very strange happens again in this situation. We see in verse 11, or excuse me, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, so he's making his plans. He's, and some people feel that he's reconnoitering, reconnoitering here. And that's the idea of going out and kind of surveying it for yourself. And so he's probably looking around saying, where's the weak points? What's, uh, where do we invade? Where do we you know, put up a siege? Where do we do whatever? 
Uh, and so he's looking out, and he was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man, capital M, stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua, in, in a typical military fashion, said, he went to him and said to him, are you for us or, against, or for our adversaries? Are you for me or against me? And so, uh, and of course, he didn't know, of course, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, the reason we know that, we'll, we'll see this in a moment. But um, this is what we call a theophany. Theos is God, ophany is sight. So this is a, a vision of God or a sighting of God in the Old Testament. We would call that Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. He appeared to several. He appeared to Abraham. He appeared to, uh, to Joshua here. We, he, we know he appeared to Moses. But um, we see that, uh, in, in, of course, uh, Samson's parents, Manoah and other people. And uh, we see that, it, it can't, that, uh, that he had a sword drawn in his hand, so he's ready for battle. And uh, Joshua said, are you, are you for us or against us? And he said, no. But as the, and I like what the original King James says, the captain of the army or the uh, captain of the Lord of hosts, or the, uh, the Lord of hosts. In other words, in the new King James, we have commander of the army, which is synonymous. But uh, I like, I guess being a Navy guy, I like uh, the word captain because it doesn't matter what your rank is. If uh, you're the head of that ship, you're the captain. And so you would even address uh, while the, uh, unless there was an admiral or something on board while I'm, or someone else, the other commander. Uh, and even, a, even a, an admiral would be captain. You know, he's the captain of the place. So it's the idea now, uh, a captain in the Navy is a much higher rank than a captain in the Army. But uh, here is the idea that he's in control. And he's saying, I'm the commander, I'm the ca captain of the Lord of hosts. And this is going to be a term that we'll see throughout the Bible. And you'll see it uh, in Psalm 46, where he talks about uh, uh, the Lord of hosts are with us. In uh, and, and, uh, Isaiah, you'll see it several times when he talks about the Lord going in battle and fighting. Um, in one of the interesting passages that uh, doesn't name it, but it uh, implies it, is in First Peter chapter 5, where the Lord says, He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That word resist is a military term, meaning he marshals his forces against the proud. So he's the captain of the Lord's host. And uh, that's kind of scary. If, uh, if, in other words, God hates the proud look and so forth. He marshals his angels. He, mar he, he, marshals, he marshals his will and even lets loose our enemies on the proud. No wonder, he says, pride goeth before a fall. And so we see that God is in control of the spiritual universe as well as the physical. And so we see that Joshua... Notice he says, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts, and I have now come, I've come to take over. Joshua, you made all your plans, but now I've come to take over and tell you what to do. And so it's kind of interesting because the Lord tells Joshua what? Uh, put down your weapons, get all the men, women, and children, put the priests out front, and march around the city. Yeah, okay. What do we do then? And don't say a word. Do you, uh, Lord... Do you really know how hard it is to keep my wife and children from talking? 
I mean, what am I going to do? I mean, I got a child that was vaccinated with a Victrola needle. Some of you older people know what that means. But uh, there again, you know, I, how can I, how are they going to do that? And then seven times the last time we're, uh, oh, when are you going to bring out the cannon, Lord? Uh, where's the catapults? And all those people, you realize they're going to be up there on that, uh, up there on that wall. And they're going to be looking at us and throwing their candy wrappers and everything else at us and say, come and get us. I mean, this is weird. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. But was it the right way? It was the right way. Some, and so many times in our life, God's will doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Do you realize what you do is so, seems so silly? You go to church and you, and I've had, I had an IRS agent laugh at me one time because she challenged me about uh, my giving and I was able to pull out the checks and show that, uh, that back when you had, you know, that's when uh, you had checks and uh, we still do. But uh, I was able to pull out all my canceled checks and show her. And she thought, man, this holy roller or whatever. I don't know what she thought, but she kind of shook her head like I really didn't believe he had it. You know, it was one of those things. So you have people that think you're weird by doing what God tells you to do. Doesn't he? Or don't they? I mean, you raise, and boy, we had this, you raise your kids that way and they're, they're going to turn out weird. <laughs> you know, you put them in church and they'll never know what the world is like and all those different things. And so it's always, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the world, does it? And a lot of times it doesn't make sense to us. But when we do, when we walk in, with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When they do his goodwill, he abides with us still. And with all those who what? Trust and obey. And so here we see Joshua. We, don't, we see him as a good commander. We see him as a good captain. He doesn't question it. He just goes ahead and obeys what the captain tells him to do. And that's what, commander, that's what a good captain or that's what a good officer knows. He's a good follower before he's a good leader. And so he followed his captain. And so we see that and Joshua fell on his, uh, on his face to the earth and worshiped. This tells us that it was God because no angel would accept the worship of man. Twice, Revelation, John told, get up, see that thou doest not. Don't worship me. And because they were angels talking to him. But whenever Whenever Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he fell on his face. Did, he, did the Lord tell him to get up? No. And here we see that uh, he fell on the, to the earth and worshiped and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Isn't that, boy, that's the mission. Okay, now that you've identified yourself and I know who you are, then you reveal yourself to me. Okay, Lord, what is it? Then the commander of the Lord's army, the captain of the Lord's army, or the Lord of hosts, said to Joshua, take off your sandals off your foot, for the place you stand is holy. Now, who else was told to do that? Who? Moses? It's interesting. Now, remember, as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. But notice God did it a little bit differently just like he does in our lives. How many burning bushes do you see in the Bible? One. 
How many times do you see the Lord appearing with a sword in his hand in the Bible? One. I mean, as far as in the Old Testament. So we know that he'll have one in his mouth in Revelation. But uh, here we see that God did it a little differently. But was it the same God? It was. God doesn't always do. I mean, we can't expect God to, to speak to me like he might speak to you. That's the reason we need one another. The, the, the things that God does in your life many times might make me envious because I want them done in my life. But God's going to do them a little differently because he's our personal savior. And as a result, he works differently in each one of us. Uh, a lot of times we, we want to see great revivals like there were in the past in America. And that's one of the only places we've ever seen thousands of people come together en masse and hear the preaching of the word of God. It was here because of our freedom of speech. God doesn't guarantee that. You know where the, the fastest growing uh, churches are, or as far as groups of people that would love to be churches, are in the world today, the Middle East, and uh, the 1040 window that goes right across into China. Thousands of people are being saved over there. I uh, like, uh, and even down in Africa, I think of uh, um, the man, uh, a man named John Kennedy. I've talked about him before. One of the most impressive men that I've ever met. Uh, he was from uh, Central African Republic. Uh, I haven't heard from him in the last several years now. I'd like to get in contact with him. But, uh, uh, but he, uh, he was brought to America by, uh, by one of the churches that uh, we had fellowshiped with. And I was able to talk, uh, we were able to talk with him. And uh, the churches were being burned. I mean, they were having all kinds of problems with Muslims moving that way. And yet they were starting churches faster than they were burning. And he and, uh he said, how are you able to do that when we can hardly even get people to church here in America? And he said, well, because we don't have two cars in the driveway. Our, our freezers aren't full of food. And uh, we'd, we would depend on the Lord much more than you do. And boy, was he right. You know, he said, maybe the Lord needs to send you a little bit of struggle to see the need that you have. And so it is, you know, many times God puts struggles in our lives not to hurt us, but to draw us closer to him. These children of Israel were not going to be given a red carpet treatment. They had to fight for everything they got. And God says, but I'll go before you. And if you'll follow me, then you're going to be greatly blessed. And so we see, take off your shoe. Get yourself ready. Purify your hearts. Come into my presence and allow me to take over your life. And live for me and I'll fight your battles before you. I like, uh, of course, uh, the one of the great stories I love, and I probably tell it too many times, but I love the story of Martin Luther. After he, was, he uh, had defied the church, and uh, he had made that great statement in front of the great council of the church where he said, if you can prove to me that the scriptures, that I am wrong in the scripture, then I will gladly recant. But if not, then by the grace of God, here I stand. I could do no other. And they wanted to burn him at the stake, just like they had done John Huss, a man before him, about 100 years before, very famous. And he knew that that's what his was going to be, his fate was going to be. Except God intervened, and he was kidnapped by his own friends and by what they called electors, a, uh, a man who had meant, uh, that were the people that controlled Germany, and uh, 
He was taken to a castle and kept there for a year and protected by, by the king of that, uh, that area, the elector, as they would call him. And, but during that time, he did some great work. He translated the New Testament into the German that is still used today. He did all kinds. He wrote songs and uh, wrote multiple letters. That's one reason we know him so well. Wrote but one of the books uh, that he wrote that is probably one of his most famous, The Bondage of the Will. Uh, just all kinds of things that really makes him stand out even till today. But um, he got restless as a man of, that he was. And he said, you know, I can't stay here the rest of my life. I'm going to depend on God to deliver me. And at that time, he, was, he wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. And he left that castle and he preached around Germany for a couple of decades later. And he died an old man of natural causes. But he trusted the Lord. And he trusted what God could do in his life. Let's turn to that hymn tonight. Hymn number 81. <laughs> 